This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, guys, we're going to look at the heart tonight, so it's going to be hard work, okay? I'm going to ask a lot of you. You've done really well in going with me so far, but I'm just going to sort of tip you over the edge tonight as we look at really the place of transformation. Remember we in the diagram that we looked at, uh, we saw that the heart was the place where God likes to move and transform us into the image of Jesus Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So the heart, remember, describes what's really you. It's your emotions, it's your will, it's your mind, it's your spirit. That's just how the Bible describes you. That's how the in Hebrew mindset, that was it. What makes up you is your heart. But sadly, instead of us, I guess, being vulnerable and open with our hearts and letting God and others help us in this place most of us have done this to our hearts most of us in this life have done this to our hearts we've protected we've defended we've perhaps ignored what's really going on we've pretended everything's okay I know my story uh, my uh, mum remarried when I was eight and so I suddenly had a stepfather arrive in the home who really didn't like me very much and my sister and we had a load of different issues, um, which I won't go into now. But I remember the age of around about 13 or 14, because home life was so difficult, I made an inner vow. And I promised myself to do two things. The first was to never let anyone into my heart so I couldn't be hurt again. And secondly, I decided I'd never, ever cry because that happened too much at home and it was too painful to think of anyone else hurting me as much as I felt hurt at home. And I never ever realised how damaging those decisions would be to, to armour up and to hunker down and not let anyone get to my heart. I grew up believing that men don't cry, any sort of vulnerability is weakness and it was that classic thing, though, whenever I saw someone sharing vulnerably, I would just think, how courageous is that person? But when I imagined myself sharing vulnerably, vulnerably, vulnerably I just thought that's utter weakness. And that's how we see vulnerability. It's weakness, but it's actually pure courage. And all of that meant that I could not form proper relationships because I always kept everyone at a distance. And this gap developed between my internal life and the persona that everyone else saw. And so I acted in a certain way around lots of people and it bore no relation to what was going on in the inside. And that gap grew so big that I lost track of what was going on on the inside. And I became all the different personas that I thought other people wanted of me. I know that's pretty deep, but that's the, that's the reality of my life. 
Listen, if you lock up your heart, if you armour up your heart, you will never, ever change. It's as blunt as that. If you decide that your heart is no-go territory for God or for anyone else, you will not change. C.S. Lewis, great Christian writer, put it like this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. And it will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And over the years I've found many people don't handle their emotions properly and it stops them from changing. But you need to know that Jesus, who was the perfect man, was an emotional man. He had anger, compassion, sadness, grief, joy, a sense of abandonment, loneliness. He felt all those emotions deeply and expressed them perfectly. God gave us emotions. Why? Because we are made in his image. He is an emotional God. And so we must learn to use and express our emotions in a healthy and normal way. And you will never be spiritually healthy unless you are emotionally healthy. God simply cannot bring the transformation that we we require. So listen, I love the presence of God. I love fantastic teaching. I love being in a community of discipleship. I love being in a place of prayer and worship. I love it. But you can have that to the max and never ever change if your heart is locked up. We must pay attention. We must pay attention to our emotions. We must learn to feel them, express them and even learn to not let them rule over us. And what is wonderful is this. Your place of greatest brokenness and hurt and grief and trouble and pain can become the most glorious, victorious, fruitful place if God's healing goes deep and far in your lives. So whatever it is that in your life, the place of real difficulty or places of hurt, you need to know in the gospel, in the transformation that Jesus brings, that hard horrible place with Jesus can become your most glorious place the place where your testimony most rings true the place of authority to speak into other people's lives the place that you look to as the evidence of the work of God in your life your most fruitful place amen and we want that to happen about two years ago um uh, you know I've spent a lot of time thinking about my own journey with God about two years ago as I was teaching on some of this I felt that I'd got to a point where I didn't feel like I was changing in the way that I think God wanted me to 
and I spent some time just on a retreat and I prayed about what it, what's, what are the blockages, what are the barriers and I came up with about 12 different things that I think could be happening in my life but I was stuck and uh, I phoned a friend and my friend was brilliant. He said, why don't you come and visit, stay a couple of weeks, get some time just to be with God and I'll line up a couple of friends that I think might be able to help you. And I met with uh, a guy who's the head of counselling in a university in the States, uh, just over coffee one evening. And that evening, uh, I talked about my 12 things. And um, it was in that conversation that my friend drew a little diagram for me, which I found really, really helpful. And I've got it on the PowerPoint for you now, and it's not quite as pretty. But he said this, listening to you, Matt, it seems like so much of your life is about seeking intimacy with God. That's what you want. That's what you long for, is to be intimate with Jesus. But the way you do it is you need to imagine that you're on a seesaw with a pivot point in the middle. And this seesaw goes from side to side. And on one side, you're full of despair. And what he meant by that was that I go into seasons of my life where I want to give up in my relationship with God. I want to give up the whole Christ-likeness thing because I've tried really hard and failed. And what tends to happen in that place, I reach for certain things to bring me comfort and bring me hope. And in my particular case, I often go to sort of bad eating habits. I find a lot of comfort in the food that I eat. And so on one end of the scale, I'm left in a lot of unbelief. And then what happens after a while is I start to see it for what it is. And I want to move out of that place. And so I switch on the seesaw to the other side. And the other side is control. And in the controlling place, I want to get hold of my life. I want to get things right. And so in terms of eating, I become very controlled with what I eat. I fast or I get very fit or I'm very good at just really managing how I deal with food. But it's in that place, and I'm pretty good at being controlling, in that place all I find is not intimacy, but I actually find pride because I feel like I'm sort of earning something with God. I feel like I'm becoming more godly. I'm not, but I just feel like I am. And then I see it for what it is and it throws me to the other side of the seesaw and I'm despairing once again and I just want to eat whatever I like and do whatever I like and feel the comfort of that. And he said, that's where your life is. You are on either side of this seesaw. And he said, the most important thing to realise is neither control nor despair will ever bring you intimacy with Jesus. Ever. And so I was like, well, what do I do? That's my life. And he said, well, there's a couple of things. And if we just do to the next slide. Just look at the top, uh, the, 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 the thing in capitals. So you've got despair on one end, control on the other. He said three things. He said, number one, you need to just be familiar with the work of Christ and what he's done to bring you freedom. But either side of that, and I mentioned this this morning, he said, you need to... You need to pursue vulnerability more often. And so for me, it's a massively shameful thing to struggle with food and be the age I am, in the position of leadership I am, teaching about discipleship, for it still to be an issue. 
But I know every time I share it, it is a shame buster. It sort of brings something that's very hidden out into the light. And the second part of that is the ownership of the issue. I think I said this morning, I can't just stop eating or I can't just eat whatever, whenever, but rather I, de- I just need to acknowledge that I've got a bit of an issue, and, but with, with friends and in Christ, I can move forward. And you know what? Just getting my head around that seesaw sort of life, just me acknowledging what's really going on, uh, I realise the root of all my eating issues and my despair and control was actually rejection. And I'm just desperate to be loved. I'm just desperate for people to accept me. And these are ways of managing that acceptance. And I know now that rejection and the way that I deal with it and the way I move into the God's acceptance of me is my weak place. It's my place of brokenness and shame. But it's also the place that I love to see people stepping into freedom. It's, I love to see people that struggle with rejection and shame and fear step into the light and know the acceptance of their Father in heaven. So this is important. Um, I don't know how well I explain this, but how many of you are aware you do a seesaw in your life? You might have different things at the end of the spectrum, but how many of you? Okay, everyone look. Look around. That's 90% of the room, maybe 95% and we've got 10% that are asleep or watching the Champions League on their phone or something like that. So, uh, oh, oh, I shouldn't have said, shouldn't have said. So I am after getting to the heart tonight and getting to the place of your pain and vulnerability because I know that will be the place God could be most glorified in your life. And it will become the most fruitful place. There's tons of stuff I want to teach you about the heart. We could have done idolatry, which is sort of the theme of worship tonight. We could have talked about vulnerability and brokenness. But where I want to land is identity. I want to talk to you tonight about the fact that Jesus' victory on the cross changes our identity permanently. And one aspect of our identity is that we are sons and daughters of God. It's the doctrine of sonship. Now, um, we have about six people doing a f- sort of a year one of an internship with our church. And a couple of months ago, it was my task to speak to them about the doctrine of sonship. And I said to them, listen, guys, tell me what you know. What do you know about the doctrine of sonship? And they did a pretty good job. They said it means that we now have complete access to God. So we're sons, not slaves. Romans 8 verse 15, if you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. They said it means you have intimacy with God. So Jesus tells us to pray, our Father. It's it's our I guess it's, the, it's our first step into the Father's presence is that we declare, you're our dad, you are Papa, you are our Father. They said, heaven's resources are available. So Matthew 7, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask him? And lastly, they said, amazingly, Jesus is our brother. So we get adopted into a family where God is our Father, but Jesus becomes our brother. 
And I thought, wow, you're quite well taught. And whatever church you've been in, they've done a good job. It's my church, obviously. And, um, and I was impressed. But then I asked them this. I said, what does it actually feel like when you pray to God, your Father? So they knew the doctrine. I said, what does it feel like? And I got six different answers. Here are the answers. The first one said, it's difficult because I've never known an earthly father. And so I think of God as a friend, not as a father. Because I can relate to friends. The second one said, I just feel like God the Father is absent when I pray. So I never feel him and I never hear him. The third one said, when I pray, I imagine a father who's unreliable. I never know what I'm going to get. And so it's easier to just, in one sense, sort my problems out myself so I don't really pray that much. The fourth person said, for me, it's about performance. And I only think the father will treat me as a son if I've been good enough. The fifth said, if I'm really honest, I'm full of doubt. So when I pray to the Father, I just don't know what I'm meant to say. And the sixth one said, I'm a cynic. Unanswered prayers makes the whole experience feel pointless. And so I don't really trust the Father. Many of us know about the doctrine of sonship, but very few live in the good of it. It's mainly because we've either had absent fathers ourselves or fathers that tried and failed uh, to be the fathers that they needed to be. Even if you had a brilliant father, the reality is they still would not be anything like our Heavenly Father. Martin Luther, great reformer, he said this, I have difficulty praying the Lord's Prayer because whenever I say, Our Father, I think of my own father who was hard, unyielding and relentless. I thought it was someone's fine. Let me just say that again, because I think you weren't listening. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have it on the screen. It says this, Martin Luther, I have difficulty praying the Lord's Prayer, because whenever I say, Our Father, I think of my own Father, who was hard, unyielding and relentless. All this means that many of us distrust God, and we struggle with the concept of a loving, perfect, compassionate Father. And we live like orphans, not knowing that we're really sons and daughters. Um, how many of you know, next slide Richard, I mean, who knows who this is? Andre Agassi, if you're under 20 you probably don't know who he is, but he used to have the most amazing mullet haircuts. But this guy was eight time Grand Slam singles champion back in the day. He competed in 15 Grand Slam finals, he was an Olympic gold medalist and Agassi was seen as the best service returner in the history of the game. And it was interesting, recently an article was brought out in the Week magazine that explained that Agassi was actually brought up in a very deprived childhood. His father, Mike, had moved from the, to the States from Iran and, his, and decided that his son was going to become a multimillionaire. How on earth was his son going to be a millionaire? Well, it was through him becoming a tennis star. And so the training started for Andre Agassi at six months old. And his father made a mobile to hang over his child's cot made of tennis balls. 
And so the idea was if Andre's eyes were going to focus on anything, then it was to be a ball. At the age of two, Andre had a full-size tennis racket strapped to his arm. So everywhere he went, he would carry the racket around with him to build up his strength. At four, his father went the next step in converting his back garden into a tennis court and purchased the dragon. The dragon was a machine that could fire tennis balls at 110 miles an hour. And Andre writes in his autobiography that his father was a mathematician at heart. His father worked out that anyone that could hit 2,500 tennis balls in a day would hit 19,000 tennis balls in a week and a million balls a year. And his theory that any child that could hit a million balls a year would be unbeatable. Andre says that he used to shake physically when his father turned the machine on. And ultimately, Andre was a very, very successful tennis star. But the cost was a totally devastated, broken relationship with his father. When Andre won Wimbledon for the first time, his father didn't bother to turn up. And when he phoned his dad to tell him that he'd won, his father's reply was, why did you drop the fourth set? Agassi went on to say this, I hate tennis with all my heart. I continue hitting morning, noon and night because I have no choice. He was an orphan in his own home. And I believe the church is full of orphans that live in God's house. They're wounded from their experience of their earthly fathers and that acts like a filter or a lens in the way that they view God the Father. You know, we noticed a while back that our kids, when we had to tell them off, they started to really defend themselves. So they really started to sort of blame other people. And we noticed that um, it was because they were beginning to believe the lie that our love was conditional, that our love for them was dependent on them behaving well. And so the more they defended themselves and passed the buck, the more they thought they would be loved. Listen, has your identity has, as God's child truly changed your heart? A friend told me about a beautiful moment in a church meeting where he saw a grandfather holding his grandson who was a boy struggling with cerebral palsy. You know, sometimes you see those wheelchairs with the neck braces and kids being sort of pushed along because they've lost really control of their body. And the grandfather had sort of taken him out of his special chair and had picked him up and was holding him just really close and the boy was just sort of lying in his arms. And during worship, what the the grandfather was whispering over his boy was, God loves you, I love you, you're a really special boy. God loves you, I love you, you're a really special boy. And somehow that just captures the truth of the way we relate to God the Father. We are just a limp, weak person in the arms of a loving father who takes us in his arms and just declares his love and the truth of our identity in him. So listen, 
how do we receive in our hearts this identity as sons and daughters of God? How do we receive the doctrine of sonship so it doesn't just stay as knowledge, but it actually comes deep into the heart? Well, let me give you a couple of very, very practical things. And it fits in with that circle that I gave you earlier. So number one, let's talk about renouncing the lie and announcing the truth. As I've said, most of our behaviour comes from the fact that we're believing lies in our minds about God, the gospel and ourselves. And whenever you see the lie, you must fight it, renounce it and announce the truth. And uh, some of you have got lies that you believe about God the Father that you need to fight in a very intentional way. Some of you think God is conditionally loving And you need to repent of thinking that his love is dependent on your performance. You know, I've got a lad, a a mosaic that I'm discipling, that never tells his dad what he does. Because his dad in the past has been super disappointed with all his career choices and failures. And the lad has tried really hard to sort of tell his dad what he's doing with his life. But he constantly gets beaten down. And so it's just so sad, but he just doesn't tell his dad anything anymore. His dad loves him conditionally. And so he can easily believe the lie that God loves him conditionally. It's about his performance before God. And this guy is nowhere with God because he doesn't want to do anything because he just thinks he's going to fail and God will be disappointed. And, you know, if God's disappointed, then that's it, game over. I don't know how many of you remember the 1992 Olympics. Anyone remember where they were held? 1992 in Barcelona. Somebody like, I wasn't even born. But 1992, Barcelona Olympics. Um, There's a beautiful illustration of this, of the father's love. um, Played out on international TV. Um, Derek Regmond was Great Britain's 400 metre runner. And as the starter gun went off he ran the race of his life the race that he'd been training for but in the back stretch Redmond was sent sprawling as he tore his hamstring and by act of sheer will he got back up and started limping towards the finish line and by this time everyone else had finished and suddenly Derek's father who was in the crowd watching sort of got to his feet scrambled over seats, jumped over the barrier, pushed his way past security guard and went and stood with his son. And then together, arm in arm, they finished the race. And that, that's how we finished the race, with our Heavenly Father. He, we, all, we all run with a limp. We, we are not perfect. And if you believe that, God just only loves you when you're perfect, only approves of you when you're perfect. You've missed the grace of God. You've missed the unconditional love of God. It's so special because it meets us in our place of weakness when we're down and out and cannot finish the race. Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. I glory in my weakness because he gets to see the unconditional love of God in that moment. So some of you, the lie is God is conditionally loving. For others of you, the lie is that God is controlling and manipulative. That's my story. I had a controlling and manipulative stepdad who just put a wall around my life 
and said, you must live it like this, and it's only if you live it like this that I will approve of you. And some of you, you just know that that is how you see God, that he just manipulates you into, into this whole Christianity business. And you have no idea of the freedom that he gives you to enjoy life and to lead a life that is full of love. For some of you, you believe that God is a poor communicator, that you think God is silent, that it seems like everyone else hears from God. Like it feels like when people talk about their relationship with God, it's like there's this open heaven and it's like a conversation. And you just think, that never happens to me. And you know what? Sometimes it's just that you've got... um, Uh, you don't recognise when God's speaking to you. But for sometimes, God is is actually silent. I know there's many times my kids ask me of things, and instead of saying no, I don't say anything. I sometimes try and change the subject, I try and talk about other things, because I know now's not the time for the answer. It's maybe in the future. But it's so hard to see that if you just believe the lie that God doesn't like speaking to you. And so is that what you need to repent of? Is that what you need to expose today? God is a poor communicator. Some of you believe that God's fickle and unreliable. I was discipling just a guy who really wanted to emerge into leadership and was just kept on feeling like he had the gift but not the character. And so he was like, I'm ready to go. I want to lead. I want to do this. I want to do that. But his church leader kept on just sort of saying, we need to wait. Be patient. And you know what? The thing that just unlocked his character and his development as a leader was him realizing that because his father, who was an alcoholic, was completely unreliable, he never knew which dad was going to walk in the door. He didn't know whether it was going to be fantastic dad or abusive dad that when he related to God, he always thought God was that way as well. And so he never felt he could trust God. He never felt he could come to God openly, vulnerably, and allow God to father him. And it meant that he was always, in one sense, looking to others to fill that gap. And so he had this great leadership gift, but actually he was really needy. Like he really needed people's approval and affection. And so for him, right at the heart was this lie that he believed about God. And I wonder if you see God as fickle and unreliable. And we're nearly there, but some of you think of God as cold, aloof and disinterested. So um, I had a stepfather, but I also had a real father that I would go and see every couple of weeks. And my my real father was really into rugby, so I grew up playing rugby from the age of six. And you know what, from 6 through to 16, I was desperate for my father to come and watch me play rugby. And he never did. And there were times where, as I won competitions and all that sort of thing, that I was desperate for him to be in the crowd cheering me on, and he failed to show. Left me feeling that God can sometimes be just disinterested in my life, that other people's lives are so much more fascinating and interesting And my moments of glory and high points in my life, God is just a little bit bored of me. 
Now I wonder if you believe the lie that God's just aloof. He's just not interested. And lastly, I wonder if you believe the lie that God's just stingy with you. Um, J. John says that Christians are so tight, they squeeze, well, well, Christians are so stingy, they squeeze money so tight, they make the queen cry. And I know that's true in Yorkshire, but um, (laughs) God is not like us. He's a bountiful giver. He's not stingy. We've got Psalm 103 here written in the message. Let's read this together. It says this in Psalm 103. Why don't you join with me? God is sheer mercy and grace. Not easily angered, he's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag or scold, nor hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor pay us back in full for our wrongs. As high as heaven is over the earth, so strong is his love to those who fear him. And as far as sunset is from sun, sorry, sunrise is from sunset, he has separated us from our sins. You know, for some of you, you read that and just think that does not apply to me. And that is a lie. God is generous, compassionate, full of love for you. So that's the first thing I wanted to say to you tonight, is that you need to renounce the lies and announce the truth. The last thing I want to say is that for some of you, you need to receive and believe. I had a friend who visited uh, a Romanian orphanage. Um, At this orphanage, uh, there were hundreds of kids that had uh, been abandoned, no family. And as he walked into the orphanage, he was struck by one thing. And that was the fact that it was completely silent. And he just thought, this place has got hundreds of kids in. Why is this place completely silent? And sadly, the person who was running the orphanage, they said to them that um, when the kids come in to the orphanage, they cry, and they cry for help. They cry for their mums. They cry for their dads. But after days and weeks of crying, and no one comes, they lose the ability to cry for help. They lose that. There's no hope in doing it. And so over two weeks, this man uh, spent time with one boy in particular that he wanted to adopt. And he said there was a glorious moment at the end of the two weeks of day after day of spending time with this boy is that they hugged and tried to explain through a translator that they were going. As they left the room, the boy let out a cry. Daddy. And that moment captures perfectly Galatians 4 verse 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of our sons into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The spirit fills us and touches our hearts so that we cry out to God Abba Father and there is a moment for every Christian where that needs to go from the head to the heart it needs to go from just a doctrine they know about to a deep cry if you have never ever experienced the love of your heavenly father 
then there is more, more to be had. There is more receiving of the Spirit. There is a greater sense in which you vulnerably offer your heart to God and let him fill it. Listen, um, have you received the Spirit? Have you felt the love of the Father? Is it just a concept? Romans 5 verse 5 tells us, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Receiving the Spirit empowers us to believe that God is a good, perfect Father who's adopted us into his family. When I came back to God at 21, I was prophesied over like we did earlier. And it was, I mean, I'd never known anything like it. Uh, it felt someone was reading my diary that I didn't have. I, I had no idea how they did it. But at the end, they said, why didn't everyone we prophesied over, why don't you come to the front and be prayed for? And I was just sort of coming back to God. I'd come from a very conservative background where we prayed for people at a distance. And it scared me like anything coming down the front of church for ministry time. And I had no idea what was going to happen. And I stood at the front... Um, sort of arms crossed very tightly chin tucked into my chest my eyes scrunched up and uh, I obviously looked very uncomfortable and I was just trying to think of the most godly thoughts I could think of heaven, angel, you name it that was just all going through my mind just be pure, be pure, be pure and someone graciously, lovingly just sort of put their hand on my shoulder and they said Matt why don't you just Open your hands. If you're going to receive from God, why don't you just open your hands, ready to receive? And I just did this. And I think physically, as I did that, just the armour on my heart, just, I think one of the panels got pulled away. And I tell you, they prayed, and I got filled with the Spirit. It wasn't like a baptism in the spirit. It was a drenching. And the, the only way I can describe it was like someone had ripped open the top of my head and poured liquid peace and love from the Father. And it, I could just feel it filling me. And uh, for some of you tonight, that's what you need. You need someone to come alongside you and pray for the love of the Father to be revealed to your heart by the Spirit. Others of you, you need to spend a little bit of time just perhaps announcing some of the lies you've believed about God. And uh, so renouncing those lies and announcing the truth about who you are. It might be that you need some other people to come around you to help you with that. So we've got a bit of time now. And uh, you've done so well with keeping me, with me. And uh, this is the vulnerable bit for you. And this is the bit where you don't just so now, you don't just think, oh, I'll deal with this later. But this is, the, this is it, you know, where you say, God, I don't understand all of it, but I know I want you to have my heart and I want to trust you with it. And your places of deep pain and brokenness, bring them to God, even if you can't put words to it. So do you want to stand with me? I'd love to pray and Howard, please help me if there's anything you want to share. Do you want to close your eyes, guys? Do you want to just 
You might want to just find some space, actually. Why don't you spread out from your chair? Open your eyes before you do that. That's great. Yeah. And just... Literally, you all just went like this. One step to the left. Well done. So free. Get some space. Go to the back. Get to come to the front. Just, yes, move around a bit. Okay, do you want to close your eyes? And in a moment, I'm going to ask some of you just to put your hands out. You don't have to do it just yet. But in a moment, I'm just going to just invite you to do that. But first of all, um, you know, when we talked about the lies we believe about our Heavenly Father, my guess is at least one resonated with you. And why don't you just, in your own heart, just confess that to God and say, God, I'm believing this lie about you and I renounce it in the name of Jesus. It's not true. And I'll tell you what, very quickly, the truth will come to you. And you need to announce that over your life. So just take a moment to do that. And I want to pray for the Holy Spirit to come now and fill you afresh. So why don't you just, if you're happy to respond to God like this, why don't you just put your hands out. And you just come to him ready to receive. Holy Spirit, you're so welcome to come. And pour the love of the Father into our hearts. Lord, I pray you break the power of lies that many of us have believed for years and that you would reveal your true nature to us tonight. So Holy Spirit, come. Come to us. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.